to The Tenderness Revolution, a podcast about the stories of kindness, compassion and empathy that play out in our lives, because these deeply moving experiences describe what it means to be human and invite us into a new way of thinking about the world and each other. I'm your host, writer and journalist Yvonne Gavin. And every episode, I'll be asking a new interviewee about a pivotal moment of tenderness that helped shape the course of their life. I'm here today with British radio and television presenter, Matthew Stadlin, known for his BBC interview series, Five Minutes With, that saw him interview over 200 celebrities while holding a large countdown clock and his weekend talk radio show that covered numerous contentious issues over the course of its four-year run. Born in Hammersmith, London in 1979 to Nicholas Stadlin, a High Court judge, and Francis Stadlin, he attended St Paul's Public School and Cambridge University, and despite being a high achiever throughout his life, he has spoken openly about his struggles with anxiety and OCD, both in the way it's affected his life and how he's chosen to deal with it. I'm really grateful to him for talking so openly and honestly about an issue that affects so many of us, yet is so often misunderstood. So Matt, it's so good to see you. It's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for coming on The Tenderness Revolution. It's really good to see you for the first time in a long time, apart from on Instagram. And it's great to get a little view of what life is like in Botswana. I know, I know. It's quite hard to believe that there's this huge, you know, 6,000 miles or, or 7,000 miles between us. But I know it's been a long time, but it's really great to reconnect. It, it's, it's at moments like these when you still kind of blink at the awesomeness of technology, isn't it? Because it does really feel like you are in my kitchen. I know. I'm in Tunbridge Wells in, in, in Kent, on the Sussex-Kent border. You're in... Here I am in Botswana. Sunny yeah. Botswana. Yeah, it's winter, but it's still just so much sunnier and brighter than it than it ever would be even on a summer's day in England. So I'm glad. We've had dreadful, we've had dreadful, dreadful weather here, but I was at Wembley last night for the Spain-Italy game, which is just incredibly exciting, even though we're still in a pandemic and the Delta variant is running rampage. I thought this is kind of a once in a generation opportunity. So I went along and I was in the Spanish end and looking at the opposite end where all the Italian fans were hanging out, just ranks and ranks of them with the late evening sun dipping oh. across them. It reminded me of Italian 90, which was the first major competition I can really remember. So it's an amazing evening. Oh, wow. You're so lucky that you got to go to that. That's fantastic. It sounds beautiful. Good Great experience. Um, I just wanted to start off by talking about the past year because... I mean, what a year it's been, 2020 leading into 2021. I mean, it's been a, you know, a global pandemic. It's com- a completely unprecedented times, but it, it was also quite a difficult year for you with some big milestones in your life. You know, you left the talk radio show at LBC that you'd done for was it about five years, six years. Four years, yeah. Four years, okay. And then every, every Saturday and Sunday morning, one till five, can you imagine? Apart from maybe a couple of weeks or so a year, for four years. No, I can't imagine. 
consider what that does to your sleep, but also to your social life, to your romantic life. It's, yeah. it's kind of extraordinary looking back at it. It's quite extraordinary. It's sort of like a, it's like a grueling level of commitment that, you know, I, well, I can't imagine really, but I'm sure. It was strange it's- because on the one hand, I had a really good lifestyle and I chose when I worked and I was kind of master of my own ship very largely. But on the other hand, it was, you know, in the hours of the week that I was doing, was nothing like someone who who manages a I don't know a tapas bar in Tunbridge Wells or London who are in work from I don't know three in the afternoon till midnight I mean that's serious hard work but it it was just the fact that it was completely in the middle of the night and on the weekend so when the person you loved was coming home from a hard week at work I would be going off Psychologically, yeah. that's very difficult. I remember interviewing Damien Lewis, the, the red-headed actor. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. My old BBC Five Minutes with series. And he said something along the lines that it was it was kind of strange or just very different that he was going to work when everyone else was yeah. coming or most other people were coming back from work. So he'd yeah. go off to the theatre to do his job when people were coming home. Yeah, yeah. And so I was I was out of sync with... Every, almost everyone I knew mm. and that was quite challenging but but I I loved it and it was a real privilege I mean just imagine I did something like 1600 hours of live national radio so all sorts of things are happening on your watch mm. you know the, the, mm. the London Bridge terror attack happened you know minutes or an hour or so before I came on air so I had to do four hours yeah. of live broadcasting of what was going on when we didn't yeah. know quite what was going on with no adverts. Trump struck the Syrian airstrip. Professor Hawking died, you know, just George Michael died. All sorts of unexpected things seemed to happen. Mm. And particularly on Friday evenings, big news would happen in America. I mean, the riots, if you think about it, and the Black Lives Matter protests and you know, America felt like it was on fire at Absolutely. some point last yeah. year. Mm-hmm. And then there's the pandemic and there was Brexit. So it was, a, it was a remarkable time to be on air. But more than all of that, more than than covering those stories, was the just the ability to, the opportunity to engage with the likes of you and me. You know, I spent my career mostly interviewing celebrities, interviewing famous people. But here I took, I don't know, 11,000 calls or something from people up and down the country, people in China, people in America, in Canada, all over the place. And just to be able to get a sense of their life story or what mattered to them, people would tell me things that they'd never told anyone else. And they were saying it live on national radio. And that was an enormous privilege. So I I wouldn't swap it for anything. I feel really lucky to have done it, but it was pretty grueling. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great leveler to have those kind of conversations. And also, I would imagine it it gives you that real sense of common humanity. So, you know, I think it's so easy to forget how, you know, how much we share as humans. And that kind of I mean, right there in the moment, you have to connect with those people. You have to connect with something that they're saying and and be able to, you know, relate to them. And I'm sure just for you on a personal level, it must have been quite 
sort of a profound experience really to have those like insights into people's lives and what people think and what people feel and then be able to really engage with them yeah I think I don't know what it's like in Botswana but as you'll know the UK is still very divided it's been divided ever since the start of the Brexit process the build-up to the referendum and now that we've got the pandemic although the public is over what has been overwhelmingly, I think, in favour of restrictions, we still have a lot of people who are anti-lockdown, anti-mask and so forth. And it's a very divided time. So what I, I mean, there was no doubt that there were periods of my tenancy at LBC where I would, you know, why people were wound up by me. People thought I was the worst of the woke or whatever. And, you know, I think on one, one occasion, someone rang up from Hampshire and said, or New, the New Forest, and said, before I say anything, Matt, I just want to tell you that I really hate you. So there was, there was a lot of craziness going on. And my, but, but I came to learn that the best role I could play was, yes, being strong about my views, yet, yet, yes, saying it as I saw it, calling it as I saw it, but trying, as you said, Yvonne, to connect with people so that even those I really disagreed with, even those mm. people who are saying really quite offensive things, I would try and establish a connection with, try and find some sort of common humanity because that's the truth of life. I mean, unless we're dealing with Nazis, and even Nazis are human beings, you know, there is something that you can reach out to in each other. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... That's really what this podcast is all about. Um, And yeah, I mean, I really believe in basic goodness and I believe that that's really what's there at our core, you know, and then we have these difficult experiences and, you know, we have stories and we tell these stories about ourselves and things that happen in our lives, but underneath it all, you know, we, we are all made of goodness, but it, it's not always easy to get to that place. It's not always easy to hold on to that belief. Um, it's not always easy to communicate with people who, who are very difficult and who don't have any sense of that within themselves. But you, you really did have quite a difficult year. A little bit before that, you did go through a divorce and um, it must have been quite a difficult time having to go into lockdown. Having just yeah, I mean, just before, just before answering that, just to add to what I was saying, I think social media, although it can have a benign influence, and I wouldn't have written my book, How to See Birds, a little plug there, which is a, a book of my photographs, including birds that I photographed in East Africa, not so mm-hmm. far from where you are, but also everyday birds here in Britain. That wouldn't have happened if... Instagram hadn't existed because it encouraged me to become a better photographer. It helped me to see other people's brilliant photographs that I wanted them to emulate. And so that kind of goodness, spreading a bit of beauty, both on Instagram and then eventually in the book and trying to open the door to a different world to people, show them the excitement of bird watching and that there really is beauty on all of our doorsteps, whether we live in an inner city or whether we live in Botswana like you do. I think that that is an example of where social media can work really well. But it also promotes division. So if I tweet something negative, which I often do about Boris Johnson's government, and I don't really have any qualms of doing that because I think it's an awful government, that's much more likely to get traction than if I say something positive. Yeah. 
So it's almost as though the algorithms promote division. Oh, they do. Oh, they do. It just means that the world sort of becomes entrenched, whether it's about the pandemic or it's about Brexit or it's about Trump or whatever it is, whatever happens to be on the table, you know, the armies are fortified on both sides and, and, and social media has a massive role to play in that. So I think there are real dangers with social media and obviously I'm the millionth person to make that point. But on the question of my personal year, 2020, I mean, everyone, almost everyone. Some people had, as it were, a good pandemic. Some people sort of thrived in those circumstances. They liked being able to step back and reflect on their lives and take some stillness in a hectic world. Yeah. For me, I'm a, I'm a very outgoing person. I would say I'm gregarious. I love hosting big dinner parties of 16 or whatever it is. I have to throw big parties for my birthday. I had a huge and wonderful wedding back in 2017. I'm on stage, or before the pandemic, I was on stage a lot interviewing Michael Caine or John Cleese or Joe Brand or whoever it was, Richard Dawkins, you know, hundreds, sometimes nearly 2,000 people in the auditorium. I go up without any notes. It's just almost when I'm most happy, even perhaps almost more exciting than live radio because you can create an atmosphere in a different way. You can you can connect with the audience, you can make them laugh, you can put mm. them at their ease. Yeah. That's the sort of person I am. And therefore the pandemic for me was a disaster, both because it shut down parts of my work. So obviously the on-stage work went online and I was very grateful for Zoom, but it wasn't the same thing. But also because you know, I, I think I'm sort of at my best when I am out there and I'm kind of connecting people and I'm performing and all the rest of it. And I became a recluse. And that's partly because the other side of my personality, or there is a part of my personality that is incredibly anxious. Mm. So although when I go on stage, I barely feel nerves anymore. I've done it hundreds of times. And I don't get any sort of anxiety or performance anxiety about performance. I have this sort of Achilles heel, which is anxiety. And it's always revolved, pretty much always anyway, around a fear of doing harm to others. Yeah. Which is partly altruistic. Mm. And I hope comes from, I hope, being a reasonably good person. But it's also partly very solipsistic. The idea that I could do disproportionate harm, mm -hmm. putting myself at the centre of things. Yeah. And then when the pandemic happened, my whole train of anxiety about this idea that I could do harm to other people without intending to, it kind of came to, it came to an awful fruition. Because suddenly in a pandemic, you really can do terrible damage. If you, if, you, if, you, if you give someone COVID by mistake, the chain of reaction can go on and on and on for a long time and cause a lot of harm. So that terrified me. And I became reclusive. I didn't want to go outside. I wasn't scared of the disease for myself at all. But I was really worried that I was going to do harm to other people. And I thought I might have had it looking back in late February, early March. But this was before testing took yeah. hold. Yeah. So I'll, I, I'll never know. No. And, I, and, and that terrified me, not because I was worried about myself, as I say, but because I was worried about who I might have come into contact with. I mean... At its worst, I was doing things like, I mean, I did a nine page, a nine A4 page list of every shop 
and person that I'd come into contact with in the previous four weeks. Goodness. I'd run up my bank and tried to work out what time I'd been in a particular place. Oh my gosh. And, I mean, over the course of the year, this spiraled to almost being out of control. I mean, I've to this point had 29 PCR tests. I oh know people who've gosh. had them. I've had about 60 lateral flow tests since they were became available mm. I would do things like I'd go and get tested and then I'd worry if the tester had touched my mouth with her glove and then I'd spray my face with Dettol when I you know after I'd left the testing site and obviously do not do that at home okay just don't spray your face with Dettol but my point is that I could give you countless examples of extreme behavior like that and on, on one level, I knew that I was being extreme because everyone else was telling me I was being extreme. But on another level, in some of what I was doing, you could argue that the science backed it up. So I was in this terribly fraught and confused grey zone. And it was very, very difficult. And it made life incredibly hard to live and to, to, or, to, or to function. And during this whole time, my divorce came through. And... You know, it was kind of like a bonfire of awfulness. And I, I have to say, I'm really incredible. I was a very difficult person to deal with last year because everyone else was going on their own journey mm. and trying to sort of bumble through as best they could in these unprecedented circumstances. Everyone, a lot, not everyone, as I've said, but lots of people were suffering or struggling or worrying. So if you've got one of your friends who's usually kind of the life and soul of the party, if, if, if me, Matt, is sort of over there panicking and terrified that he's sort of killing people left, right and centre, th that could be contagious. So people sort of, on the one hand, they want to help you, but they also presumably want to protect themselves from going into that extreme zone themselves. And so I think I was a really difficult person to deal with last year. I'm eternally grateful to my dad, uh, who, you know, former High Court judge, recently won the, the Cape Town International Film Prize for a film he made about Mandela's co-defendants. Mm. A really thoroughly brilliant man in every way. And he just put in sometimes many hours a day to get me through it. Really? So it was, a, it, you know, going into L the LBC studio to present four live hours of national radio in the middle of the night and eight hours across the weekend when you've got nearly 200,000 people potentially listening and you're in the worst state that you've ever been in and doing that time and time and time again, so I did 200 hours of COVID broadcasting. That is a big challenge. And my biggest battles, and they, you know, I've had anxious periods before around my finals at Cambridge and then when I was a BBC presenter and, you know, I've come through them and I'll explain how I've come through this in a minute, but you know, my biggest challenges have been with myself. So when you're fighting yourself, it's really tough because I'm yeah. quite a sort of scary opponent. Mm -hmm. And my dad just sort of metaphorically, because he was away for the year in, 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 in the countryside with my mum, luckily, but metaphorically held my hands through it. And together with my resilience, which is even more powerful than my anxiety, I was able to get through to where I wanted to get through before then telling LBC, ahead of the winter okay I'm stepping down now I need to you know I need to get my life back and the anxiety yeah. you know it would just would have been at that point carrying on with LBC with that level of anxiety it wasn't sustainable I was pushing myself I think not just a breaking point but way beyond the point that other people would have broken
You know, just to give you a quick example, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd come off air at five in the morning, feel a little bit better about life, get home, not sleep, maybe sleep an hour or two, and then spend the rest of the day in an acute state of anxiety, worrying whether I had long COVID and whether that meant I was still infectious. And so I would then go to do my second slot of the weekend on one o'clock in the morning on Sunday, having had about two hours sleep and spent the entire day or most of the day in acute anxiety. So this was a really extreme position to be in. A lot of people would have thrown, I think everyone I know would have thrown in the towel by that stage. I kept going, but it just wasn't, it wasn't healthy. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's not healthy mind state to be in um, I honestly don't know how you did it um, but I'm really fascinated in the way that anxiety manifests in you and why it's so acutely concerned with other people's welfare and I wonder about you know how and whether you were able to show tenderness to yourself because it's as though everyone else is more important than me. You know, everything that you've just said seems to kind of suggest that. And then I, yeah, I, I think you can only get so far in life with that sort of mindset. It's think- such a weird, weird mix, Yvonne, because on the one hand, in those circumstances, when I get into that anxious state, I prioritize everyone else's well-being above mine. Mm. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm very self-oriented and sometimes selfish and self-preoccupied and I have an ego and I like attention and I want to succeed and I'm ambitious. So it's a really weird and sometimes toxic mix. But in terms of being kind to oneself, I've actually got a particular moment that I want to share with you, but more generally, my mum, who's also been an equally important part of my life and, uh, you know, a really wonderful influence, she said to me quite early on in my adulthood, that's, I think, the earliest I can remember, has sort of pushing this particular line, but she just said, be kind to yourself. And it's just mm. an incredibly simple mm. sentence, but it's very, very powerful. Mm. Because I, I, I think in lots of ways, I am a perfectionist. My mm. friends will tell you I'm anything but perfect. I can cause trouble, I can upset people, I can wind people up. But I, 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 I do think yourself. that, say again? You push yourself, I mean, to the, I mean. Yeah, I do, and I sometimes push other, I push other people too far. So I've got loads of faults, but I think I can be, I can be a perfectionist, both in terms of um, what I want from myself professionally what I want from relationships what I want from other people and you know what I what I want from myself morally and that puts you under a lot of pressure so having your mother who you respect and love say just be kind to yourself Mm. that really resonates resonates. the moment I wanted to share with you is I I remember it vividly I think I was 18 and I used to have this thing so I'm redhead redhead as you can see ginger uh, and I used to get bullied you know, pretty much most days at school, either low level, apparently so-called low level, just, you know, ginger this, ginge this. I'm not even going to use some of the words that I was <laughs> called. 
but every day it sort of eats away at your self-confidence and your oh. sense of identity because yeah. you know you've been picked on because of your appearance like I happen to have been bullied for all sorts of other reasons and very seriously in some cases but I was bullied about my appearance just on a sort of casual everyday basis for you know on and off for 10 years or whatever but it's so isn't it because it's so it's like it's actually such an attractive quality and it's so attractive to have red hair but it's it's kind of so ironic that children love to pick on it in the way they do I think in adulthood it's something that you know everyone I know that's got red hair is so proud of it but yeah it's just it's just it's just a difference it's just about being different yeah othering it's children can sometimes other can't they say yeah by othering someone else by saying someone else is different or pointing out someone else is different yeah they may be feel more secure as being part of the pack themselves, part yeah. of the group, I don't know. But yeah, that was really difficult. And there are various things that came with having red hair. I don't know, I don't actually know whether it was specifically linked, but I used to blush a lot. So, yeah. and, I, and I was a very late developer with in, in my romantic life. Yeah. So uh, I was, you know, only started kissing girls a long time after almost everyone else. And I remember used to go out at night and in the evenings, you know, on a Friday night or go clubbing or whatever to the pubs. And I was just terrified that I was going to blush because I just blushed the whole time. And I thought that made me red in the face and therefore less attractive. Oh. And I struggled with my sense of attractiveness yeah. in a major way anyway, as you would if you were teased for your hair. Mm. All the time. And I remember getting one back one night when I still had my old single bed in my bedroom in, in Notting Hill in London. And I had had another night where I'd blushed a lot and failed to kiss any girls. And I just saw this note that my mum had left under my pillow or on my pillow. And it just said that blushing is a sign of, I can't remember what it was, but something positive, sensitivity or whatever. It's a really important part of you and you should celebrate it and all the rest of it. And I'm not sure I sort of ever blushed in those circumstances again after that. And it was such a tender moment for my mum to have identified what was upsetting me and what was getting under my skin. And it was such an effective way of helping with that, that it, it, it just had quite a sort of profound effect, I suppose, not just in helping me not to blush by, by relaxing me about blushing, but also, I suppose, just a communication of love, knowing that, as I always did, but another affirmation of the fact that my mum really loved me and she was on my side. Oh. Oh wow, that's so powerful. I'm I mean it like you said it's amazing that she was so connected to you. She knew what was going on in your life and she could tell that it was affecting you. And then she knew that by doing that, you know, she could reach out to you and have an Im- impact on you and a profound one as well. So that that's really wonderful. It's something about being seen. You know, I mean, whether it's by someone who we know really loves us or even just by a stranger, but to feel really seen and understood, it's it's extremely powerful. Everyone wants to be seen. Everyone yeah. wants to be heard. And that's something yeah. I know very well as an interviewer. People yeah. really want to tell you their stories. Yeah, yeah. They do. I mean, I mean, Matt, so interesting what you've been saying about your anxiety and it just it just kind of reinforces just how, you know, humans are just so complex. I mean, you know, it's easy to kind of imagine that anxiety is one thing and that somebody who struggles with anxiety is, 
you know, dealing with it in a particular way or it's manifesting in a particular way in them, but it's, it's really complicated. And, you know, obviously you've had so many different influences on you. Who's to say how or why it's impacted on you in the way that it has. Did you get any sense of that when you were having therapy and talking? So I think it's really hard to unpick mm. for me. I can't speak for other people. It's been really hard to unpick where that anxiety came from. But I remember and know that when I was a little boy at primary school, so sort of four, five, six, perhaps even through to seven, eight, I think. Yeah. I used to hate being left at school and I used to sometimes break free from the yeah. headmistress's grasp, run down the little lane outside the school near Kensington High Street and get my dad, who just dropped me off, to promise that my mum would be there at three o'clock on the dots to pick me up. I hated yeah. it when my parents went out at yeah. night. I hated being left, you know, mm -hmm. with no pairs or whatever. I had huge separation anxiety, I guess you'd call it. Where on earth that came from, mm. I don't know. But I was in that sense a very anxious little boy and then when I went to Collet Court my prep school at the age of eight my parents were really concerned that I might not go in I might not go into the school and luckily Mr Greenbridge who was a teacher who had taught my dad 30 years previously at the same school he saw my parents bringing me into school he knew nothing of my issues and he just sort of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and kind of pulled me into the building and I never looked back in that sense. And now, you know, I, I would say if I was a psychologist, that I'm a sort of bundle of contradictions, although yeah. perhaps they make sense somehow, because I've now been, I've, I've been to 84 countries, I've been to every continent apart from Antarctica, I've been to places lots of people would not have been to, like Libya and, and Syria and so forth. So, but I haven't let go of that anxiety, that anxiety somehow has stayed with me. How you unpick it, it's very difficult. Yeah. I wrote a piece in the Telegraph, which yeah. used to be an economist there, in 2015 about my anxiety. Yeah. And what's interesting looking back at that is that, you know, I was very open about it. I was obviously a little bit anxious about publishing it because I was worried whether that would impact on my career. Yeah. I said, you know, in the introduction, you wouldn't know this about me if you were boxing with me or playing rugby with me or, or, or whatever it was but I struggle with this anxiety thing. And at one point I said in the piece, I absolutely wouldn't judge anyone else if they decided that the right thing or a professional decided that the right thing for them was to go on medication. Yeah. But it wasn't for me. Yeah. And, and my dad had brought me up with one of many, many encouraging phrases, which was when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Mm. And I sort of tried to apply that to my anxiety. So when I was at the BBC making my documentary series that I presented and produced, I, I, I got hugely anxious for whatever reason. And I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning of the edits, but I forced myself and I said to myself, I remember this about 2010, in six months time, you won't feel this anxiety. You, you, you want to feel that you haven't given into it. So you must get out of bed. Now, what's changed since then and, you know, I earlier described the resilience I showed to do my LBC shows last year. But what's changed since then is a realisation in myself that I came to with the help of a psychiatrist for the, same, for the first time. So I've been seeing a, the same psychologist on and off for a decade. Yeah. So I thought I'd upgrade the seriousness of it by going to see yeah. a psychiatrist in December. And what changed by talking to this person was a realisation that actually, I don't know whether I'd say I use the word need, but 
it was time to try medication. So I'd always, not for other people, and I never judged anyone who went on, on medication themselves, but for me, it was anathema to me to use a drug. I've never done recreational drugs. Yes, I've drunk alcohol. I want to be in control of my own mind. Control is a big thing for me and probably linked to my anxiety on some level. Yeah. But I wanted to be able to get through this through the force of my own personality and with talking therapy. So the guy diagnosed, uh, the guy the, the guy basically kind of said I had anxiety and OCD. And he, yeah. and he prescribed me a drug to tackle the anxiety, which is yeah. usually used or, or, or often used for depression. Yeah. But I've used it as an anti-anxiety or anti-OCD drug. So for the first few weeks after that, I still didn't let myself take it. And then and I was anxious about side effects and all the rest of it. In about mid-January, things were so bad still with my anxiety, partly pandemic related, partly related to other stuff, that I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. And I would say it probably was a bit of a rocky first few weeks, but, and you never know whether it's a placebo effect. I never know whether it's a placebo effect or not, but it seems to have helped to transform my life. Well, that's incredible. last year, Last year, I was curled up almost in a ball in my bed, mm. worrying whether some, some symptom or other was ongoing COVID and whether yeah. I was going to kill the cleaner at LBC. <sighs> Last night, as I've said to you, I was in, the, in amongst the Spanish fans yeah. of Wembley. Yeah, and you were there. So it has been, And you were enjoying it. Yeah, and now I'm living life in an entirely different way to last year. And it's been really, really helpful. Now, I'm not, an, I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a mental health expert. I would never recommend this, that, or the other to other people. Beyond, for goodness sake, talk to people, speak to people. Yeah. I think that's uncontroversial. Yeah. Yeah. Working with your mental health, reach out to people, get help, and get professional help. Yeah. I would never, I'm never, not in a position to recommend drugs to anyone. So I'm not going to proselytize about them. All I will say is, in my case, after a lifetime of struggling with anxiety on and off, sometimes acutely, this going on a low dose of this medication has been, it feels like it's been hugely, hugely helpful and, and has helped me to feel like I can spend time with my family and my friends. And yes, we're still in a pandemic. And yes, there are still dangers. And yes, not everything that I was worried about last year was bonkers, as it were, you know, it was irrational. Right. There was a degree of rational about it. But now I've sort of got, you know, my risk assessment was way out last year. My yeah. ability to analyse risk was way out. Now it's much more in sync. Yeah, yeah. So you can be more rational. Well, Matt, that's really incredible. I mean, if you have found that that really has helped you to thrive in your life, then that's just amazing. And I think it sounds like it's, sort of change the lens that you've been able to put on a different lens and actually you know experience the world in a, a more I don't know, you're just having more enjoyment out of life which is you know really important but there's yeah, because, because my, my life is you know it's exactly right change the lens I mean you know I used to do things like I would be driven to Cheltenham Festival, interview David Suchet in front of a thousand people, come off stage on a Friday evening at 9pm, be driven back to London, go into the studio one till five, have two hours sleep, be driven back to Cheltenham to interview someone else, have do my show Sunday morning, 
have one hour sleep, be driven to Henley to interview Alistair Cook, the former England cricket captain in front of hundreds of people. That was my life. And yeah. I loved it. I love being busy. I love engaging. So not to be able to do that for the last however many months and to cut back my ability to socialise with friends and see my family was horrific, as yeah. it has been for the majority of us. So being able to just see things a bit more in the round and analyse risks more effectively is yeah. so important. Yeah. I mean, I, I find what you're saying really fascinating. And I mean, you described yourself as a bundle of contradictions. And yeah, I mean, like we all are. But I think particularly you, as in many people who are in, in the media, working in, you know, positions where you're, you're in the spotlight. I mean, you know, as you said, you're doing interviews for TV, on the stage, in front of, you know, hundreds of people. And it's incredible to think that you were able to mask your anxiety, because even though maybe your anxiety wasn't actually directly linked to those performances, it's still there. So I wanted to ask you, I, I, I mean, there's this, there's this thing of toughness, obviously, that's there, that's kind of propelling you and driving you. But I think what really interests me is just the extent to which the pursuit of success, you know, to the extent that you've had, I mean, you were, you went, went to a very, you know, high performing academic school, St. Paul's, you went to Cambridge, you know, the background that you've had, I just wonder how can you come from a background like that where you're being constantly encouraged to always push and push and then go into a career where, you know, it's very much about, you know, doing these, you know, pieces that are going to be really successful, that are going to be listened to by lots of people. How is it, is it possible to achieve or to have a life like that without some degree of anxiety? It, it really interests me. I just don't know. I suspect that a lot of people in the public eye struggle with this sort of thing or, or watered down version of it. I know, for example, people I've interviewed, Ruby Wax, Alistair Campbell I've interviewed quite a bit, Stephen Fry I've interviewed. These are people all high profile. In the case of Alistair Campbell, you couldn't think of a more alpha male person. And yet all of these people and Stephen Fry, you know, one of the most gregarious, outgoing, powerful personalities. You can't think, and Ruby Wax too, you know, a huge mm -hmm. comedian. You can't think of three people, particularly, I think, Campbell, because he was, you know, he was right at the cut and thrust of, yeah. of government and yeah. Tony Blair's sin doctor. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily a few years ago have thought that these people could be struggling. Mm -hmm. But thanks to all three of them for coming out about their experiences, we now know that we can all suffer from this stuff. You know, not all of us do, of course, but that, you know, you just don't know what's going on behind the scenes, I suppose. Yeah. So whether you could be successful without anxiety, I imagine a degree of anxiety might, might, might help some people. I don't know. I mean, I had an upbringing where my dad was a successful barrister. He became barrister of the year. He's, he holds the record for the longest speech in English and Welsh legal history, 119 days i know he, high court judge yeah you know, high court judge my godfather was is alan rusbridger who was editor of the guardian yeah my grandfather was a concert pianist my great 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 uncle was johann strauss we're family friends with martin wolf who's one of the most respected 
economics writers in the country and so on and so on. It goes on and on. I was, you know, professors of medicine, my dad's cousins, you know. But so did you, you know, feel this immense pressure as because of that to be successful? I mean, did you I felt think, huge, I, have, huge pressure. I have to be really <laughs> successful because look at all these people. I can't just, I don't know, become well, a priest or a carpenter. You know, I have to be like somebody. Well, being a, being a priest or a carpenter would be just as valuable as any of those jobs, of course. But I, I, I guess I, I didn't, I, it, it must have filtered through subconsciously or by osmosis, but I, I didn't feel actively feel pressure because of that, but I must have been influenced by it, as I say. I did feel huge academic pressure from school, and there was a lot of academic pressure at home. Yeah, yeah. And high expectations. And I, I find yeah, it's, it's it, very. It was, fra- it was framed, it was framed, just to say it was framed as trying to be the best you can be, be you know, trying yeah. to give yourself opportunities so that. Yeah when yeah. you leave school, you have a chance. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a competitive thing on the part of my parents, mm, mm. But, but, but it was, but I felt it. It was huge, mm, the pressure. Mm. I'm now at a point in my life where, so I did nine years at the BBC, had my own TV shows, did four, three years at the Telegraph as a self-employed writer and interviewer. You had the Matthew Stadman column, did four years at LBC, done all this stuff on stage. Now I'm at a point where I'm, not working far more than I am working, partly because of the pandemic, partly because it takes time to climb back up the cliff face. If you step down from LBC, it takes it doesn't just necessarily slot into place. And but there's um, this thing of there's like a ladder, isn't there? I mean, I, I often wonder about that. I mean, you know, I've got friends who are, you know, female journalists who've written books and you know they put their heart and soul into these books, and then the book comes out, and then as soon as it's published instead of feeling, wow, you know, I achieved that goal, I, you know, I did it, that was my ambition. It's like, now I've got to write another book and I've, it's got to be better. So, so there are two things like that. If you think about Alex Ferguson, so Alex Ferguson won 13 league titles with Man United. I, I suspect he enjoyed each league title for about a day and then he was plotting the next one. And it's so interesting with success. I mean, failure can haunt us, can't it? Or some of us and get us down. Success, the buzz of success lasts, I mean, it's a buzz. So therefore it, it doesn't last very long unless we really try and work on that. If I come off stage after a big event, it's just the most incredible feeling. Yeah. But the next day you've got to get on with the next thing. Mm. And so there's, there's a bit of that, as you say, with your friends. And then in my case, it feels a bit like snake and, snakes and ladders. You mm. know, I left the BBC, you feel like you're going down the bottom again. Yeah. Left the Telegraph, same thing. Left LBC, same thing. It's such a staccato existence that I've not, I wouldn't say I've chosen a staccato existence. I've chosen a very unpredictable path. And that has led to the sort of the uncertainty of it. And yet now I don't go to parties, not that there are many parties going on at the moment, but I don't go and sort of think, gosh, I've got to justify myself who am I anymore another important thing my mum said to me once is it's not what you are it's who you are so you are not defined by your job now I've reached that position of relative zenness partly because I feel confident I have already achieved a lot yeah partly because I don't want to be judged by what I do anymore I want to be judged by who I am 
And that's when I got into my 30s, I became much more quietly comfortable and maybe confident with what I looked like physically. And now I'm in my early 40s, 41, I feel even though I'm at a career hiatus, I feel much more comfortable and confident in, 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 in my sort of my professional identity, I guess. Oh, and, and partly Twitter gives you the illusion of still having a platform. I don't have a big following on Twitter, but I've, I have quite a lot of influence because a lot of influencers, political influencers, politi politically powerful people follow me. Yeah. And so my tweets can often get viewed hundreds of thousands of times. So I, I have yeah. the illusion of still having a voice and perhaps to some extent I do. But I'm just much calmer. So if I were to go to a party now and someone says, what do you do? I might just yeah. say, I'm, I'm a man of leisure. <laughs> Not because I want to be a man of leisure, but because I'll throw the ball back at them. If they're yeah. going to judge me on that, then they can find that they can have, they can struggle to find an answer. Oh, that's really interesting, Matt. I mean, I'm really, it's great to hear that you're feeling that way these days. And I do think it's something that comes with age. And, you know, I mean, definitely for me personally, I struggled for years. I had my first child quite young um, in my twenties and I really struggled for years with the fact that I was, I was working as a journalist. I was working in women's magazines um, and she was very young and I, I did manage to do that, but I always felt like what's everyone else doing and how's everyone else managing to achieve what they are. And I was looking at you and what you were doing. And, you know, I, I've always felt like I've never quite, I could never quite get back there and, you know, how, you know, having children affects women. That's a, that's a whole other interesting conversation that, you know, I'm, I'm definitely hoping to have on this podcast, but what I really wanted to just um, just sort of talk about with you a bit now is this difference actually between self-esteem and self-compassion. Um, I've become really interested in self-compassion recently and I'm actually studying it. I'm actually doing a course at the moment in self-compassion and I think it has really been life-changing for me, the distinction between self-esteem and self-compassion so there's a an academic called Dr Kristen Neff uh, she's an American academic and author and she's written a number of books on self-compassion so she describes the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion as self-esteem comes from a place of judgment so it's contingent on what other people think of you it's how am I compared to everyone else and if you're always judging yourself via the lens of what other people think of you, it's never going to come out that well. I mean, you're always going to be on that ladder, always looking to do better and write the next book and, you know, present the next show, whatever. So there's this question always, am I a good person compared to everyone else? Am I above average, you know, and we need to feel above average in order to feel good about ourselves. So that's actually self-esteem. And it is actually the cause of a lot of prejudice. It's underneath narcissism. And it really is, I think, underneath bullying and that kind of behavior. But the opposite to that is self-compassion. Self and self-compassion is all about telling ourselves it's okay. It's, it's understanding that shared common humanity that everyone gets things wrong. Life is full of obstacles. 
things do go wrong. They're supposed to go wrong. That's the way that life is meant to be. And those things are just as much a part of our experience as the good things, as the joyful things. And that when things do go really wrong, we accept that that thing happened and that we're still a good person despite that, you know, that thing that just, I don't know, obliterated our sense of self or our career or, or whatever it is. And it's it's such a different lens and I, it's not easy to cultivate, but it it's very, very powerful stuff. Yeah, I'd say a few things about that. I, th- I think it's, I think I agree with you, it's really powerful and I think it's so important that we lean much more towards self-compassion as you've described it and away from self-esteem as you've described it. I wouldn't say things are supposed to go wrong. I think things are expected to go wrong. I mean, we'd be very lucky people if we experience no one else's death in our life, for example. So it's part of the natural process. I also don't think that it's about necessarily if something bad goes wrong, we're still a good person. I think because we might not be a particularly good person. We've got to try and aspire to be good people morally. I think it's more about that we're still a valuable person person that we still count that we still matter just as much as everyone else I have a very very powerful belief despite my own traits of narcissism which I'm not proud of but sort of acknowledge that we are all absolutely equal yes and I I think that in my case that's helped me talk to people on LBC so you know I can interview a celebrity or someone an everyday person just as comfortably and, so, and be just as interested often. I mean, someone like Michael Caine is a bit different because he happens to be a brilliant raconteur, a brilliant storyteller, and he's also spent his life surrounded by people that we all have heard of. So, of course, there's something a bit special about that. But equally, someone who's got a heart-wrenching or inspiring tale to tell on the radio in the middle mm. of the night, they can be just as gripping, but in Absolutely. a very different way. Look, I agree with you about this thing about self-compassion. It's really, really important. and you know, to some extent, as well as being, I'm not a victim of anything, but as well as having been influenced by negative forces that we all experience in society, I'm also, you could argue, part of the problem. I mean, the, 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 the life that I present on Instagram particularly looks like a gilded life. And that's because in many ways I am really, really fortunate. It's also because I make an effort to surround myself with beautiful things, beautiful countryside for example. But I can see that for someone else looking in, it looks like Matt's got this beautiful girlfriend, Matt's got this, you know, these lovely dogs, he's got beautiful home, whatever. And I can see that, that I suppose that, that people might, some people might look at that and, and receive it negatively. And so that's something I'm still talking, have, talking to myself about and wondering about my you know, we can go over the top in worrying about these things, but it's probably mm-hmm. something I should think a bit more about. Because you're right, you know, what you described about your early 20s when you were a young mum and working in women's magazines, I mean, what you were experiencing, I think, was positional anxiety. Yeah. And I've experienced positional anxiety. I mean, the media in particular is somewhere where you feel that. I mean, you feel it in all sorts of other areas, of course. But it's so public by definition, the media. So it's so easy to see what Joe Bloggs is or Jane Bloggs is yeah. up to. You know, we were on the same course together. Yeah. Harrow in about 2004 or whatever it was and yeah. it's 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 it was such an easy thing it would be such an easy thing to do to compare yourself to 
others on the course because it's a frame of reference, but it's entirely destructive. I would just say one thing, and that is that I'm not entirely convinced, but I may be wrong, that you can make it in certain jobs, certain very, very high profile jobs without a bit of ego. Mm. So I don't know whether I would be as good as I hope I am at interviewing people on stage or on the radio, or whatever it is, without a bit of ego. And what I, what I display, I hope, when I am interviewing people is empathy. Yeah. And some yeah. sympathy. But I, I think without that sort of, the, the, when I'm on stage, I'm interviewing someone, I make it about the other person. Yeah. I make funny sides, I hope, to make people laugh. And I love it when people laugh at my jokes. Of course I do. It'd be unnatural almost not to, for me, anyway. <laughs> but I do, I, I make it about other people. But at the same time, there is that, there is that sort of look at me thing. But I think this is, this is very interesting. I mean, ego, yeah, I, I think, I mean, it, everybody has ego. I think it's, it's, you have to, you have to have an ego. I think it's important to be aware of it. And I think you are aware of it. But I'm also interested in, I think, sort of more of like an intrinsic confidence or sense of intrinsic motivation so I think it depends on how you see yourself and your reason for doing things if there's an intrinsic motivation I mean I think about people like um, Eckhart Tolle and when he speaks you know he he's he's he has complete mastery of you know of these huge rooms you know he he speaks with such depth and wisdom but I I don't feel like he's self-conscious I feel like it's coming from a sort of place of deep truth and I think that's the kind of thing to aim for in terms of confidence I think you're right I think I think the people that we really admire in the public eye are the people that don't seem at least to have an ego or don't seem to be crying out look at me but are really interested in either the other person or the story I once sat opposite a quite senior BBC news journalist on the tube and talked to him about what motivated him and whether he wanted to be a presenter. And he said, it's really important if you want to become a presenter, not to be motivated by becoming a presenter. <laughs> You've got to follow the story. You've got to be really interested in the story. Now, I'm not, my ego doesn't stretch to the point where I would present Love Island or something that I thought was trash TV or, you know, wasn't doing good or, you know, I, I, I do have an ego, but I want it to be tied to projects that I really believe in. Mm. And I struggled at the Telegraph, really, because I was expected to deliver headlines. And I did deliver right. lots of headlines, lots right. of front page headlines. Yeah. But then you were suddenly turning human beings into commodities. Yeah. So there'd be, a, there'd be a gap between the very intimate, human, empathetic interview itself with the person and what was then grabbed as a quote to be put on the front page. And I felt increasingly uncomfortable about that. And it wasn't why I went into interviewing. So you get this little buzz if Gary Lineker was on the front page of the Daily Mail because of an interview done with him in the Radio Times. But it rang, rang hollow because it, yeah. wasn't, it didn't feel wholesome. I did nothing wrong, but it didn't feel wholesome. I know that feeling. I had that experience too when I was working in, in papers and magazines. And I remember feeling like, you know, I might have an idea and I, I really was really wanted to pursue this idea and it was a feature and the editor would pick it up and then it would slightly get changed and it would become well we want to hook it to this new story and then we want this headline 
and then you know it would become something else and not so much that it was I wanted my idea to be out there but it was like like the integrity of it was gone and it can be quite tricky in journalism to sort of navigate that. I just want to say that I'm not one of those people who's campaigning against what they would argue is a mental health epidemic and saying, come on, we need to toughen up and all that. I think that's ghastly. But I would say that we, mental health is a blend. You know, there's mental health, clinical mental health that requires professional intervention. And that's what I've got. And there's mental health that we all have, you know, we all to be mentally well, Men, our mental well-being is perhaps a better word for it. And then there is, there is, you know, we don't live in a world where there is no need for resilience. We do need resilience. And so it's a sort of, it, it, you've got, it's, it's important to realise that there are different elements of our mental makeup. Mm. Something might require medical intervention. Sometimes we do need to be a bit resilient. Mm. And I'd also say that perhaps too much self-compassion could lead to, unless I'm misinterpreting this, could lead to, you know, demotivation. Like we, we do have to, I think, well, I, I accept that I live in the world in which I live, where there are, you know, where it's a hard world out there. You want to make a living, you want to fulfill yourself. It's competitive, but it's difficult. And I can't shy away from that. Mm. So I think, you know, making sure if we lack self-compassion, that we have a good dollop of it in our lives is mm. really important. Mm. Mm. But perhaps not to be afraid of, you know, some of the perhaps less wholesome urges that help us to reach our goals. Mm, mm. Well, it's, I mean, I think it's always good to strive for goals, but I would argue that you can't have too much self-compassion. And I think all the research shows, I think even Kristen Neff even works with very high performing athletes who need to do better. They need to, you know, perform better, reach, you know, higher targets. And she helps them with that. But having compassion with yourself, as in, I'm doing really well, it's okay. And I didn't do as well as I could have today, but tomorrow I'm going to try and I'm going to keep going. It, it is quite a nuanced thing, but it is actually really profound work. I think it's, it's a really helpful thing. So her YouTube video is out there. I think it's the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion. And she's written a number of books um, on it. So she's absolutely brilliant. Um, but Matt, I just wanted to end our conversation with, um, with a question that this concept of the tenderness revolution, which is actually that, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, I think there tends to be a sort of a negative bias in our world. And yeah, it's quite a big uh, sort of pursuit really that I have, but I would like to, in some small way, try and change that. And there are three C's that make up this, this concept of the tenderness revolution. There's courage, curiosity and compassion. And I was just wondering if you had to choose one of these qualities in your life, um, a quality that sort of meant the most to you or that you, you you felt encompassed who you are which which quality would it be I think I'm courageous I think I'm curious I don't think you can be a good interviewer if you're not curious I'm definitely courageous and 
I also have compassion. I sometimes, I sometimes lose empathy if it clashes with my own interests, which is an ongoing struggle that I'm fighting. So I find it easy to be empathetic in most situations, but if it comes into conflict with something that I want to be doing, or I have an urge to say something because I want to say it, in that moment, I might lose my empathy because I don't stop myself, check myself and think, well, hang on, what effect or impact will that have on someone else? And that's something I'm still working on. So I could do with a lot more compassion, probably, or a bit more compassion, at least. I think a word, a, a, a fourth word, you've given three C's, but I think K is a really important word, beginning with K, and that's kindness. Yeah. And obviously, it's a cliche as with any of these words, but I think if we can all be kind to ourselves and kind to other people, I said my mum thought it was a good idea to be kind to yourself, yeah. but if we can be kind to ourselves and kind to other people, will be in a much better space. And I suspect it's a much easier to be kind to other people if you're kind to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It is, I think. I think you can be very kind and compassionate to other people, which I think you are. I think that's what's kind of driving a lot of your anxiety without being kind to yourself. But I, I don't think that if you do have that kindness to yourself, I don't think there's a, I don't think that it wouldn't filter through to your interactions with other people as well. Yeah, although as I said earlier, I think my my anxieties about other people also are they're not just altruistic; they're also solipsistic. So yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of a mix. But I agree yeah. with you. I think some people are very kind to other people. They go out of their way to to be kind to other people and just neglect themselves. So you're right; it is possible, but it's very important to be kind to yourself as well as to others. It is. But Matt, I have to say, I have enjoyed talking to you so much today. I just appreciate how open you've been. You're, you know, really open hearted and really willing to share. So it's just been so good to chat with you today and talk about anxiety and, and just, just to really have this really great conversation. So thanks so much. Well, I hope it helps other people because, you know, I certainly learned doing my LBC shows that if I could be a little bit open with others they were perhaps more likely to feel comfortable sharing their own stories if we do share our stories I think we help ourselves and we help other people so thank you very much for talking to me and wanting to talk to me and it's been a really good experience yeah I think that's how it works but absolutely and thanks so much again thank you for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution I hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us. for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution i hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us